You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Corinthians 11. Before we start with that, I kind of want to let you know where we're going to be the next couple of weeks before we read this text and pray, where we're going to be for the next several weeks. What we're going to be talking about on Sunday mornings and in community groups as we scatter throughout the city and, and, and gather in homes, um, what we're going to be talking about is how the church has a culture, how we as a church um, have inherited, have been given a culture. A lot of people think that the Apostle Paul Uh, started the church, or he started a culture. Paul didn't create a culture, he inherited one. And he even says here in our text that, thank you for remembering the traditions that I passed on to you. He received traditions and he passed them on to the church in Corinth. Later in chapter, uh, later on in chapter 11, he'll actually say, I, what I received from the Lord, I gave to you. I didn't make this up. I received this culture, this church culture, and I've passed it on to you. And so we're going to be looking at, in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, how the church has a culture. And it it culminates, it climaxes in chapter 13, the love chapter, like everyone's favorite chapter in the Bible. The love chapter, and it climaxes and culminates there. So the church has a culture, a given culture, and that culture matters. And the church is to be a, and this is what we're looking at over the next several weeks, a culture of distinction. This is what we're looking at today in our roles, in our sexuality, but with complete equality. A culture of communion, where we don't take communion lightly, we take with reverence and fear. Paul says, that's why some of you are dying, which is gonna be very interesting. Like they're taking communion wrong and then they're dying. So you have to take communion right or else you'll die. That's next week. Um, A culture of common good, where we all together have gifts, we all together have abilities and they're for the common good of the church. A culture of unity, where all the different parts of the body fit together. And Paul says, one of you guys is the ear, but because you're the ear, you should say to the body, I'm needed. You shouldn't say, I'm an ear, no one needs me. We need you if you're an ear, we need you if you're a mouth, if you're a hand. Even if you're one of the most, the, uh, one of those parts of the body where, where Paul, Paul says, uh, we kind of cover you up a little bit, but um, just put some clothes on uh, that part of the body. But we're, you're still needed. You're still a, a vital part of the body. We're a culture of unity. We're also a culture of service. Every single role and calling and office that we have as a church is given so we can serve the other. And then there's a culture of love, which is a really fun chapter about self-sacrificial love and a culture of languages. I can't wait to get to this part where the church have, has prayer languages where you speak in tongues and we're gonna get charismatic in here talking about what that means and when we can do that and what that looks like. And um, some of you people might be really scared about that, but it should be fun. Uh, and then lastly, a culture of order, which is very important. Paul says, when you get together, all these things don't happen at once. There must be order in the church. There has to be order in the way you order a service, in the way when one person speaks and people listen, and then it's submitted to a, a leadership, and we say, yes, that is, that prophecy is true, that's real, that's from God. There has to be order in the way that you guys meet together. That's where we'll be at for the next several weeks. Cool? Not cool. Okay, whatever. Um, Chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is our text this morning. Let me read it to you, I'll beg God for help, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 2, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. 
But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off uh, or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God. The woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Thank you for that, Paul. No one knows what that means. Nevertheless, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for woman to pray with her head uncovered? Does not very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. And lastly, if anyone wants to be contentious about these things, we have no other practice, nor the churches of God. Let's pray. God, we ask you, I ask you for your help, your anointing, as we submit ourselves under the authority and the power of your word, you spoke it, God, and give us insight, understanding on how to interpret and apply and walk in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so like with every single text that we come to that, it has, that is very difficult, um, I want to make some prefatory comments. The first one is this. I want to start this morning with a principle that preachers do well to obey, especially this one. It's a principle called hermeneutical honesty. It's a really fun principle. Hermeneutical honesty. Hermeneutics basically means the art of interpreting Scripture. And so this is a principle that I adhere to, and this is what this principle means. It means I should never pretend to understand more than I do, okay? I should never pretend to understand more than I do. No preacher should. So I'll be completely honest. There's a lot of this text that I confess to you today that confuses me, and I still do not understand it. Actually, no one understands it. Every book I've read, and I've read plenty of books for studying this passage, no one agrees on all the parts of what Paul is saying. When I first started studying the scriptures about a a year after becoming a Christian, I started getting serious about the scriptures and began to study them. I I remember reading somewhere, um, a Bible interpreter that was kind of, I was walking through this book to help me understand and, and read the Bible. I read that reading the Bible is like eating fish. When you come to a bone, you don't throw out the fish. You don't throw the fish away. You pull out the bone and keep enjoying the fish. There are a lot of bones in this text. But there's also a lot of meat in this text. Add to the fact that it's a very, uh, I don't think confusing is the right word. It's a difficult passage to interpret. Add to that that there's also a great cultural distance between first century Corinth and our world today in San Francisco. Symbols don't mean the same thing they did then. Head coverings over a woman do not mean the same things they did in first century Corinth. Having your head shaved as a woman today does not mean the same thing that it did to Paul in Corinth at the time. However, the topics of gender and equality are just as hot button as they were then. And this is what Paul is getting at. 
He's talking about gender, and he's talking about equality. So though our text is culturally conditioned, it is the aim of the New Testament letters, especially the letters of Paul the Apostle, to reshape the church into cultural patterns that are consistent with the gospel of Jesus. So what he wants to do, and what the letters, especially Paul's letters do, is they take the church and they reshape it to be consistent with the gospel by which we've been saved. So that's what the hope is for us today, that we are reshaped by this passage, that we are reshaped to live consistent with the gospel that we've been saved by. Now, because I believe this text will both relieve us in a sense of what we might think it's saying, I think a lot of us will be relieved and go, I think it's saying this, and you will be relieved to to know that it's not saying probably that. But it'll challenge our modern and cultural sensibilities and what we want it to say. We think it's saying that women are to submit to the authority of men here in the leadership of the church. What we might be surprised in what the text is actually saying. But we we might want the text to say, well, that was then, this is now, and we are free to be who we want to be. And in that, I think we'll be very challenged to hear that there's actually a way to live to be fully human, fully male and fully female. It's not just up for grabs. So I expect that we will both be liberated today by this text and also challenged, maybe even a little put off, but that's okay. Whatever this text means, it affirms that God created humanity, but it gives instructions to the, the instruction that Paul gives is reserved for the church. So though though Paul does affirm that God created humanity, he's writing to the church in Corinth on how they are to gather together. Paul has already said in chapter 5, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? This is important to keep in mind when we approach a subject like this. This whole following section, it has to do with the church in the church. Okay, so those are my prefatory comments. You guys ready? Okay, that was prefatory, now this is intro. Turn to Genesis 1. I know, I know that you, you knew I was going to make you go there. You're like, every, every week. Okay, Genesis 1, return there in their f- Bibles, your phones or whatever you have, hopefully Bibles, extra credit. Anyway, um, here's where I want to start today. Creation, fall, new creation. The, 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 the easiest way to frame the scriptures, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, if you want to frame it in three words or four, yeah, four words. Three movements, four words. Creation, the way they got created it, the fall, and then the new creation. Creation, fall, new creation. I want to walk you through that before we get into 1 Corinthians. It's very important. And it's very important that you pay attention. Don't tune out here. If you're following this argument logically of what Paul is saying and the implications that it has on our church today and our society in San Francisco, it's very important that you get what creation is, what happened at the fall, and what new creation does. First, creation. Genesis 1, 26. Verse 26 says this. This is the creation as God created everything. We talked about this like a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago now. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God says, let us make man or mankind in our image. And this is very important. This little triptych, this little next section here is so important to understand what Paul is saying because you might think Paul is contradicting this, but he's not. 
So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What this means is that men and women together are the image and the glory of God. Men and women together are the image and the glory of God. That's very important to understand here. Now, skip ahead to chapter 2. Chapter 2 is more of an explanation about the creation of man and woman. And Adam was created first. God, who up to this point was calling everything he created good, and he created man out of the dust of the ground. And he breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. And for the first time, the narrative breaks in in Genesis. It was, he saw it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. God is creating all these things, and he's like, it's good, it's good. And the the land, the land animals, and the sky, and the birds, and and everything, how how it all functions together, God is calling it good, good, good. He creates man. And he's like, oh, well, okay. Then the Lord God said, it's not good. Adam's like, what? What do you, I mean, it's not good that you're alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, this is where people get tripped up. A helper. I will make a, the Hebrew word is azir. I will make a azir suitable for you. Now, some people think that means I will make, man was created first and, and, and then he's alone, so I'll make woman his helper, his assistant. I will make woman his slave, his maid, his whatever. Man does the stuff and woman comes along and helps him. That's not what azir means. Azir in scripture is almost exclusively used for God as our helper. When you can't do something, when you run out of your own resources, you call to God for help. Why? Because I cannot do it. I need you to come in and do what I cannot do in my flesh. I cannot do it at all. I cannot do it. And God says, I will be your helper. I will be your azir. Woman is the azir. When it's rarely used of others helping others, nothing suggests a subservient status of the one helping, like a slave to a master. You can't use that word for male dominance. And the word suitable has a meaning of like opposite. This is very important. He created woman to be like man, but opposite man. Here's one commentator, one scholar writes, the Hebrew word translated suitable literally means like opposite him, almost a mirror image. There is a connotation of difference as well as sameness, but nothing suggesting inferiority of either gender. The helper is therefore not a pawn, but a partner, not a slave, but a soulmate. Genesis Genesis is painting a highly favorable image of women, one that would have been shockingly progressive within an ancient Near Eastern context. Men and women are like opposite. Now skip ahead a bit to verse 21. The Lord God, okay, so you guys know what happens in between the skip ahead part, right? So God says, man, name all the animals. So Adam does. The reason why God says name all the animals is Adam probably doesn't feel like he's alone at this point. He's like, I'm not alone. I have you, God. I have the animals. I have the sky. I'm not alone. God's like, I'm going to show you how alone you are. And he names all the animals, and he realizes there's no one like him. No one. No one in all the earth is like man. And so God calls Adam to fall in a deep sleep. 
The Lord caused man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, it's better translated side. God went and grabbed a part of his side and closed up the place with flesh. So Eve is made of the exact same material as man is. Equal, the exact same material, pulls it from the side. Then the Lord God made the woman from the rib that that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. When Adam sees his wife, he breaks out into poetry. He awakes and says something like this, this creature alone, God, this one alone, Father, out of all the other ones, this one at last meets my need for a companion. She alone is my equal, my very flesh, I identify with her, I love her, I do. Let's get married. And then he names her. He names her. He names her and he says, I will call her woman, for she came out of man. Please don't insert over that some caveman thing. She shall be woman, I shall be man. (laughs) Like that's not what's happening here at all. Notice, man saw the woman not as his rival, but his partner. Not as a threat because of her equality, but as a gift. The only one capable of fulfilling his longing within healing his very loneliness. And so what he does, beautifully, poetically, romantically, he places his name in her name. Isha is the Hebrew word, I'm probably saying it kind of wrong, but whatever, you get the point. Isha is the word, Hebrew word for woman. It's a play on ish, man. It, that, that pun is even captured in our English. Man is placed in woman. In a sense, he finds himself in her. He looks at the woman and knows who he is. He sees her and he knows who he is. And he becomes complete in every sense of the word. And so does she. She sees him and becomes complete in who she is. She like finds her identity in him and he finds her identity in her as being male and female. Now, there's a word that has fallen on hard times recently. It's a word that if you've been around church for any period of time, you fall on either the complementarian side or the egalitarian side. And the word complementarian has fallen on hard times. It sometimes means hierarchy, but that word complementary does not mean hierarchy. Complementary, in the biblical sense, means exactly what the word means. It means a balanced whole. A completing of like opposites. Distinct, different, but fitting together. Both needing the other to know who they really are. This is so important to think, to remember when we move into 1 Corinthians. This is the created order of gender and equality. This is the created order. Okay, now the fall. Next, the fall. Skip over to Genesis chapter 3. Everything was perfect for like two chapters. Actually like a half a chapter. Like it's good, it's good, and then chapter 3, wait, what happened? In Genesis 3... Eve is tempted to eat of the tree that they were prohibited to eat from. She gives some of the fruit, no one knows what it was, probably, I don't know, pomegranate or something, gives some of the fruit to Adam, who was with her, the text says. And all hell breaks loose. Then God goes to Adam. God goes to Adam when they fall, not to Eve. There is a distinct role in a marriage relationship. Adam has to give an account of what happens. We already established that they're equal, but there's different roles, there's distinction. 
God goes to Adam. And the results are catastrophic. There's a distortion of oneness that men and women have. A distortion of complementary roles and function that men and women have. Look at, chapter, look at verse three, 16. So God said to the woman, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. And here are the two words that are hotly debated. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Desire and rule. Women are given pain in childbirth because of the fall, and they will have desire for their husbands. This word desire can mean something good or something bad. In the good sense of the word, it means that she desires her husband. She loves him and wants him like she desires her husband. But the bad sense of the word is that he wants, she wants to usurp her authority over him. And the men will rule over their wife. There is both a good connotation and bad connotation to this word as well. The good is that men will lead, lovingly lead. The bad is that they'll harshly rule. Because of the fall, gender, equality, and complementarianism, whatever, is messed up. It gets distorted. Now new creation. New creation happens. Jesus, the Messiah, comes, embodied in flesh and bone. The embodied hope of the Jewish people, the embodied savior of the world. God's son restores us back to what was lost in the garden through his loving, sacrificial death upon the cross. Why did Christ die? To remove and take away your guilt, to remove and take away your shame, to remove and take away your sin? Yes, but that was all a byproduct to get to this. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, him, for the unrighteous, us. Why? To bring you to God. That's what was ultimately lost in the garden. Our relationship, our oneness, our fellowship, our communion with God. And Christ brings us back in. And what happens under the new order of things? What happens when Christ ushers in this new creation? A new creation breaks into the fallen and broken creation. Guess what happens? A reordering of everything. Look at this. Galatians 3.26. So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For, for all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. Therefore, your identity is no longer found in anything else but Christ. You've been baptized, washed over. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no longer stumbling blocks to come to faith. No matter who you are in here right now. No matter where you were born, or your social status, or your sexuality, or your gender, or your ethnicity, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. This is the gospel that Jesus embodied. This is the gospel that Paul preached. Okay, now we're ready to move on to 1 Corinthians. Are you guys ready? Creation, fall, new creation. Everybody with me? Creation, fall, new creation. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, turn there. Go back. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul is addressing a church that he planted, that he started, that he birthed, and that he is in correspondence with. He doesn't live in Corinth anymore. He writes them letters. They write him letters. He started that church. He raised up leaders and elders and deacons and deaconesses, and he went on to plant more churches. And he would write back to correct the church. He would write back 
to, to, to engage with the church. He would write back to comfort the church and exhort the church. And Paul would get letters back from them. And some people, some of Paul's friends would travel through Corinth and say, hey, the church is doing really well, but there's some weird things going on with this. And Paul would hear about it and write them a letter. And so we have one part of the conversation in 1 Corinthians. Since we only have one side of the conversation, we can only guess what the Corinthians were saying to Paul. Perhaps they had written him a letter, something like this. This was penned by the scholar Richard B. Hayes, and I think this, this might frame this a little better for us. Imagine the church in Corinth writing Paul a letter, something like this. Dear Paul, we remember you fondly and wish that we could see you again. Some of us are trying hard to maintain the traditions you taught us such as the tradition we learned at our baptism that in Christ there is no longer any distinction between male and female. You would be glad to know that when we come together for worship, women in our community continue to play a role equal to men, praying and prophesying freely in the assembly under the inspiration of the Spirit, just as they did when you were here with us. But a dispute has now arisen at one point. Some of the women, acting in the freedom and the power of the Spirit, have begun to remove their head coverings and loose their hair when they prophesy as a sign, like a baptism sign, of their freedom in Christ. They let their hair down. Some of the more timid and conservative members of the community have objected to this, thinking it unseemly, unseemly and disgraceful for women to let their hair down in public. Most of us believe, however, that you would surely approve of this practice for it is an outward and visible sign of the truth of the tradition we receive from you. We would be grateful if you could comment directly on this matter in order to dispel any doubt about this point. We remain your devoted followers, the church in Corinth. Did that help clarify some things? So they're writing him a letter about this. Now, let's deal with what we know. There's a lot of this passage that we don't know, but let's deal with what we do know. First thing that we know, the women were leading in the New Testament church Women were leading in the New Testament church. They were praying and they were prophesying. There were women who were leading in the church. There were women who were in public gatherings able to pray out loud. There were women in the church who were prophesying. We'll talk about what that means in a second. This was public ministry in the New Testament church. It was the only thing. Now, praying and prophesying wasn't the only thing that happened when the church gathered. But what they were doing was very public. There was an equality of men and women in worship community in the leadership of the church. And it's, and, and it's, and it's assumed here in the text, Paul assumes equality. That there are women who are publicly praying in the church. Paul never says, wait, 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 everybody time out. There's women in public ministry, women who are praying publicly and giving words from God in public, leading worship and praying out loud. What the heck is going on there? Stop doing that. He doesn't say that. He never says that. Anyone who appeals to this passage to silence women or deny them leadership roles in the church is misusing this text. Question that might come up is what is then public prophecy? What does it mean that women were publicly prophesying? And men too. What does it mean? What is public prophecy? One of my good theologian friends says this about public prophecy. Public prophecy is speaking the word of God under the spontaneous power of the spirit that edifies, strengthens, encourages, and comforts the church. This is taken directly from 1 Corinthians 14. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. 
The one who prophesies, Paul says, in the public gathering, they prophesy, uh, speaks to people, to the church, for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. The one who prophesies edifies the church. This is what, what prophecy looks like. Is when we're gathering, this happens a lot in our gatherings on Sunday, this happens even more in our gatherings, on our prayer meetings and community groups, when someone will say, I really feel and I sense I have a word from God, and then they share it. And this happens a lot, especially when we do public prayer meetings, and we call the church together for community prayer. Everyone stands up, and there's public prophecy given. This is what I feel like the Lord is saying this, I feel like the Lord is saying this. And men and women alike are able to function in that leadership role. They're talking to people as if, as if God is speaking. It's public prophecy. Now a lot of times this prophecy happens, that it's not so much a prediction as much as it's God's heart, his word for a specific moment, and it edifies. Says, have you ever been in a prayer meeting or even on a Sunday morning when God speaks prophetically and someone walks up, typically it's one of our elders, walks up and takes the mic and says, we really feel someone has a word from the Lord and it's this. And we've had that, we've had that several times happen on, it doesn't happen every single Sunday, it happens several times. I think the prayer ministry every single week moves in the prophetic. There's so many people who come forward for prayer and men and women pray and as they do, they deliver words of edification, words that strengthen, words that encourage, words that comfort. That's public prophecy happening, happening in the church. This happens when, when we have our female worship leaders leading and people come up and delivering a word from God. This is a public prophecy. This is what was happening in Corinth. Both men and women do this. Paul affirms public ministry for women. This was very progressive and liberating for women in the early Christian movement. Now, Paul writes in verse 11 and 12, Nevertheless, in the Lord, women, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, we just read that in Genesis, so also man is born of woman. So women were made from the side of man, but man, every, every man from Eve has been born from and through a woman. And this is why Paul says everything comes from God. He boldly affirms equality and mutual interdependency of men and women in the new creation. He says we need each other. And in the church, we need both men and women leading in the church. So what was Paul writing to correct and this is where it gets a little hairy. Paul is writing to correct gender distinction. In that culture, and I believe many ways in our culture today, gender was marked by hair and clothing styles. Historians prove this conclusively when they study statues and, and vase paintings and other artwork of the ancient Near East. Women, as a head covering in public, would wear their hair up as a sign of their femininity. They would wear their hair up. Some cultures even wore head coverings, head dresses. Some, some religions even wore head coverings and head dresses. But in Corinth, a lot of the women wore their hair up, braided, adorned up to represent their femininity, to represent their gender. They would literally wear, either wear a veil or they would wear their hair up. The only women in Corinth who appeared in public with their hair down or without a covering, so to speak, or their head shaved, as Paul mentions, were prostitutes and sometimes slaves. Women keeping ordered hair, and this is why Paul talks about order, women keeping ordered hair on their head, and he keeps using this word 
um, head interchangeably. Women keeping ordered hair on their hair, head had Jewish implications and had cultural Greek implications. Here's the point. There was social pressure to maintain appropriate gender distinctions. There was social pressure to say, you are a man and you are a woman. But tied to the gender distinctions of women wearing a head covering was not just a sign of their femininity, wasn't just a sign of them being a woman. Simultaneously, what wearing a head covering meant was a sign that they were inferior as women. One theologian writes, the head covering, whatever it may have been, symbolizes their femininity and simultaneously their inferior status as women. To throw off this head covering was to throw off a symbol of confinement and to enter into the realm of freedom and autonomy traditionally accorded only to men. This was like the feminist movement burning bras in the 60s. This was like, we're free. We are completely free and then boom, or whatever you do and like burn or whatever. <laughs> it's like we're free. We're not under the confines of what society says we are. We're free. We are free. This is what it's saying. But not just, but they weren't just saying we're free. The, the, the women in Corinth weren't just like <laughs> whipping their hair out and go, we're free. They weren't just saying we're free. They were saying we're the same as you. We're the same as men. We're exactly the same. There is no difference anymore. We're all free in Christ. There's no male or female, and then they take their hair out. Paul comes in with the Christian gospel in Corinth, and he says there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male, female. Women have a public role in leadership now. Women are up front prophesying. Women are up front praying. They are prophesying in public and praying out loud. And imagine this for a second. There's a woman in the church, and she's prophesying, and she's saying, Jesus has liberated us. If we're free in Christ, we're free indeed. And she's getting excited and she begins to prophesy. She says, male and female, we're all free. There's no longer women or men. There's just humans in Jesus' name. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, yes. And then this girl goes for her hairpin and she pulls it out. And then she like whips her hair back and forth. And everybody's like, <laughs> and then other women in the church are like, yes, that's what I'm saying. And boom, boom, pins start flying out. And then women's hair are down and they're, and they're going crazy. And there's some in there going, that's what I'm talking about. That's, that's right. And then there's some people in the church who are like, oh my gosh. This is not happening right now in my church. There's women with their hair down. This is getting crazy. And then there was division. That's what happened. That's probably what happened. <laughs> I have it in my head. I don't know. It might have happened. I'm thinking it happened. So there's division in the church because now there's freedom and there's unity, and women are going, they're taking their hair out, going, we can be, we don't have to have the symbol of our femininity. We don't have to have the symbol that we are a specific gender. We're all one in Christ. So Paul could have answered this two, way, two ways. He could have said, to the church in Corinth, heck yes, that's awesome. Well done. Women are liberated. Take down your hair. Shake it back and forth, Whatever. Take down your head covering. You are free indeed. He could have said that. Or he could have said this. Okay, you guys are getting a little too crazy. You know what? Let the women refrain from praying and let them refrain from prophesying when you meet in worship because it's getting too messy. The culture will start looking at you and the church will become a laughing stock. The church will start to lose its credibility. No more. 
No more women prophesying and no more women praying publicly. I'm sorry I said you can do that. I take it back. Love, Paul. It would be as if today we felt liberated in Christ and so the men went around shirtless and women wore bikinis in church. And we did that saying, you know, we were here and we're worshiping. We're like, clothes are so Genesis 3. We're all about Genesis 2. <laughs> like we're, boom. And we start doing that. And I mean, there might be some people, I mean, here, yeah. I mean, yeah, here, people were like, that church is legit. <laughs> like that's the church. That's what I'm talking about. Most of the, most of the, the rest of the world will go, that, that, we'll be on Fox News for sure. That church has, liberal church in San Francisco goes crazy or whatever. It would be like that. It's like we ignore all social norms and say we forget it all. It doesn't matter anymore in this church at all. It doesn't matter. Paul doesn't say eat neither of those things. He doesn't say you're free indeed, so therefore let your hair down, nor does he say stop women, stop prophesying. Because the, this wasn't just about liberation. Paul affirms that women are to have public roles of leadership in the church. But he also affirms that there must remain in the church a gender distinction. In Christ, we are not asexual. We are not to live in the kind of chaos in which no orders of creation apply anymore. We saw that creation was male and female. Guess what new creation will be? Restored male and female. We are not to live in a new creation as hermaphrodites, as if our physical bodies and our gender didn't matter. See, Paul is a theologian of new creation. Paul is a theologian of renewed creation. Scholar N.T. Wright says this, new creation is always the renewal and the affirmation of the existing creation. Almost shockingly, Paul does not celebrate their new equality. You would think Paul was like, yes, equality. Paul doesn't celebrate this form of new equality. See, men and women both lead, but men and women must remain distinct. Women don't just become men, and men don't just become women. This is why he says that. And this is why he says in verse 3, but I want you to realize that the head, and the word there for head is this Greek word, kephale. I want you to realize that the kephale of every man is Christ, and the kephale of, of woman is man, and the kephale of Christ is God. Kephale, this word head, can be translated three ways. It could be your literal head, your cranium, your, your lid, your head, whatever. Your literal head. It can also be translated authority. Authority over. So your head, who's your head? Who has authority over you? Or it can mean source. Like the head of a river. Like the source of a river. Paul uses these three translations or these three forms of this word interchangeably. I believe, I believe the best translation in verse 3 is source. It seems to fit best in the context of what Paul is saying. Therefore, this verse, I think, means the source of every man is Christ, meaning Christ, the creator of all things, formed man from the dust. The source of woman is man, in that Christ created her from man's side. She was the source material for man, for woman. And the source of Christ is God. And this is why I don't think authority over means that, because Christ and the Father are equal in essence. Though Christ submitted to God in his incarnation, that's why I believe it's called Christ here, Christ in his incarnation comes from God. 
his source, the one who he looks to, the one who he, he looks to for his source, he goes away and prays. Why does Jesus, who is completely God, have to pray? He is modeling that this, the head, the Father, is the source from which everything comes from. He actually even says over and over again, I come from the Father. The point is this, that there is distinction for the purpose of identity. There is distinction for the purpose of identity. Christ, the Son in the incarnation, is distinct from the Father and finds his identity in and from him. The Son is the Son in relation to the Father. That's identity. The Son is the Son, and that makes the Father the Father. And the Father is the Father because he has a Son. Man is distinct from woman and finds his identity that way, and vice versa. Man is a man in relation to woman. Woman is a woman in relation to man. It's about identity, and it's about distinction. Here's the point. This is the point in all of this. In worship, it is important for both men and women to be their truly created selves, to honor God by being what they are and not blurring the lines by pretending to be something else. You and I in the church must be fully human. That means fully man and fully woman because of the angels. I love this part. Okay, so Paul does this and every single person I read is like, why does he have to do this? Verse 10, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. And he didn't say anything else about it. He just leaves it there. He's like, you know what I'm saying. Like, because of the angels? What are you talking about? Now, I think this is the greatest verse of this entire section. This is like my favorite verse here. Two things are happening. First thing is women have the right and the new creation authority to have public leadership in the church, to pray and to prophesy. But they have to do that as women. You can't pray and prophesy as a man. You have to pray and prophesy as a woman. What that means in, that, in their culture, in their culture was to wear a head covering. It was a sign that they were women. And as women, they can speak aloud. And that's why Paul says, you, when you wear your hair up, it's your authority as a woman to speak publicly. The second thing I think this means is that when, and this is about the angels. Now, actually, I can't tell you. This is what I think it means. I don't know what it means, but this is what I think it means. When the church gathers to worship and to hear from Jesus, our head, it gathers in anticipation of that coming day when the new creation is the only reality in heaven and earth. When you and I gather as a church, we gather in anticipation. We gather as, a, as an appetizer, as a foretaste of what it will be like on that day when heaven marries earth, when Christ becomes king of this world, when there is a, the bridegroom and the bride meet. Jesus, our bridegroom, and the church, his bride, meet. And everything is set right. Everything is restored back to shalom. When we meet together, we are pointing forward to that day. We are saying that day is coming soon, everyone. That day is coming soon. Everything is in right order. Everything is in shalom. And so, as the church gathers, as it says, as the church gathers in anticipation of new creation, as we gather, angels are among us. No, I don't mean to trip you out. I've actually met an angel in San Francisco. That's another time. As the church gathers in anticipation of the new creation, 
What? What? I'm not, I'm not going to say it now. But it's another time, maybe next week. As the church gathers in anticipation, angels are among us. There are, there are angels here all around us, worshiping with us because proper worship is actually an activity that takes place in heaven and we are the earthly arm of that reality right now. So proper worship is going on in heaven and we are the earthly arm of that proper worship happening right now. Now the reason why Paul says because of the angels is because men and women need to be truly as God created them. They need to be truly what they are as God's image-bearing creatures. Because angels are among us, worshiping God, and they're created order as angels. So they're going, I'm worshiping God here as an angel. And you better worship God as human. And what it means to be human is fully male and fully female. So the angels are saying, okay guys, you be a man and you be a woman and we'll be angels just like God made us all. Are we all cool? Okay, let's worship. That's what the angels are saying. You be a man, and you be a woman, and I'll be an angel. This is God's created order. Angels keep that in check. And there is even this connection to Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 6, and Re- uh, Revelation chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 9, where we're worshiping, and as we worship, the angels are covering themselves because God is that holy. The angels are saying, God is holy, let him be worshipped rightly. And for us to be worshipped rightly, I have to be fully angel, and you have to be fully human. See, what God says, and angels confirm, and Paul pushes us towards is that our bodies matter. And how we use our bodies in worship matter. But here's the deal. We all still live east of Eden. We live in very messed up bodies. I know that this brings up all sorts of questions. All sorts of thoughts and ideas. All of us that live in our bodies have lived in our bodies and have fallen short of using our bodies to honor God and others. All of us have. And this brings confusion. And this brings confusion to our sexuality and to our gender. It also brings shame sometimes. Misusing our bodies can bring shame. Shame and unworthiness, the impossibility of approaching the living God because our bodies are broken was represented oftentimes in the Old Testament by wearing a veil. You would cover yourself when you came in the presence of God because your broken body was not worthy to be in the presence of God. Your broken flesh and all of its complexities and all of its brokenness was not worthy to become before the living and true God. And so you would cover yourself. You would veil yourself. And this veil represented your unworthiness. This veil represented your shame. This veil represented your brokenness. And what Christ has come to do in our lives is remove that veil. To bring us into our fully human selves. Our true identity as male and female. Christ comes and restores us. And he, Paul writes later on to the Corinthian church in, the, in 2 Corinthians that Christ has come to remove the veil. He says in chapter 3 in 2 Corinthians, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, anyone at all, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image 
with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I know, I know, guys, that we come from broken places. Our bodies are used in ways that dishonor God. The way that we are renewed to become fully human and being transformed to the image of God is through worship. It's through worship by the, through the only means necessary, the only means available to us, and that's through Christ. Christ died to bring us to God. Christ died to make us fully human. On my break, I was reading this book that probably in a lot of ways saved me from, from a, just spiraling and just a lot of stuff I was wrestling through personally. And I was reading through this and there is something, and even what Jason was saying during our, our, our time of, of Sherry's story at the beginning, there is something about the city, about even professional ministry that makes us think that we're larger than life. I think there's something about social media, about a globally connected world, a global society in which we live, that makes us feel larger than life. And keeping up with that larger than lifeness kills us. We don't know how to be present. We don't even know how to be human. And I was reading this book about how Jesus restores us to our humanity and he said, just think about it, think about every superhero. Any comic book superhero, I'll nerd out here, I'm not a comic book guy, but I know there's some of you, there's people in here that do that. Think about every superhero there is. All superheroes do is restore people back to humanity. The reason Superman comes in and, or Spider-Man or Batman or anyone is to restore order of being human. They kill bad guys who are, and villains who are came, coming to disrupt what it means to be fully human. And because there's Supermans and Batmans and Spider-Mans in the world, in their world, men and women can have lives you can have jobs, you can marry and have kids and enjoy the ocean and hikes because superheroes just restore you back to humanity. Jesus is our hero. He comes in and he restores us back to who we were meant to be. He restores us back to that garden where we can be fully human again. If you don't get that, ask God. If you don't understand what that means, seek him. Seek Christ, his face. And as we, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of God, we will be reshaped into the image of God. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Thank you for the patience of this church. This is a heavy text, but I pray, God, that we would worship you, Lord, right now. With unveiled faces, those who have trusted in Christ, that we would remove our shame, that we would remove the shame and and take your identity, Lord. Take the, that baptism identity back. And say, we're in Christ. We're new creation. And we can live as fully human people. Change us, God. Change this church as we worship you. That's what it does. That's what worship does. It changes us. So change us now. As we repent, as we turn, as we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.